This is it, man. This is what your grandchildren are going to be smoking. Future. The future. Because when you think about it, what did I really do? I crossed an imaginary line with a bunch of plants. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Nick's Nonfiction. You are tuned in here with your host, Nick Muniz. We are going over this month America's most cherished creative writer, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, what he calls a savage journey to the heart of the American dream. This book, a cult classic, which I've been avoiding my entire life just because I felt excluded. I felt like you needed to be this cool or do this many drugs to read this book. Anybody could read it. I'm debriefing it and giving you some laughs over the next couple hours and this book is really just a jolly good time about frying your brain gonzo journalism going hard and trying to get a story you guys noticing something a little different going on here new microphone it is upgrade time baby We got that sure industry standard microphone. I'm out here reading the comments. I see you guys out here getting involved. We see all the views. Thank you all. So I'm taking the positive feedback. I am taking the negative feedback and we are enhancing, making this a better quality experience on all ends for everybody. Let me lube you guys up a little bit more for this book. Fear and Loathing. I know you have always been curious about this. You see the art. Maybe you have seen the blockbuster movie with lady killer Johnny Depp. Watch it a couple times to prepare for this show, man. It is a fairly accurate account of the book. Obviously, the timelines are a little different from the book. You always hear the book is a little better than the movie, a little more detail. The stories are a little bit more embellished, a little bit more fun in the book. And you're getting that all through Nick's nonfiction today. A little bit of a stretch for us because Hunter created his own genre with this book, basically. It's not straight-up nonfiction. It is what is called gonzo journalism. And this is when you do what Hunter did, load your brain up with mescaline, a thousand mics of acid, an eight ball of cocaine, a quart of rum, and go to Las Vegas during the cop convention, during the Grand Derby Dust Bowl race, and try to get a story. This is called gonzo journalism, and something will always happen. Pack some heat, bring a gun. Hunter did just that for us. All the stories are rooted in some autobiographical instances, So it is fact in some sense. It's weird fact. We're going to read it as fact. (laughs) The book partakes of like a two. Hunter went back and forth and back and forth to Las Vegas all within a one week period. But he's driving 100 miles an hour. So it seems like it all happened within 48 hours. And immediately after his lawyer flies home, he spends 36 hours locked alone in a hotel room writing the events to this book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which in 1971 was published by the Rolling Stones as a savage journey in the heart of the American dream. And then it was turned into this New York Times bestseller turns into a movie. As for this past month, what do we got? We got that tiny chick on the news, the fucking... A 13-year-old Greta Thunderberg or whatever. She doesn't have a climate degree. She's never been to an environmental science lecture. Her parents have loaded her brain with so much anxiety about climate change that it is the only thing that she can think about. This is some garbage, man. If every child... No, better comparison. If any of us, I would not be able to have built a couch 
if I was this concerned about climate change, Bernie Sanders is on the news saying, our children aren't going to have a world to inhabit due to climate change. That's not true. If you actually believe that, you wouldn't be talking about free college. You would be talking about saving the earth. It seems like a farce. It's one of the best scams ever, it looks like, in this 13-year-old's one of the best distractions ever as well. And then we got the left-wing conspiracy theory, the three-year conspiracy theory, about to be four-year, still going strong, Russia collusion. There is zero strands of evidence. The most recent one that they're saying is, he was talking to Ukraine before the election. So was Hillary Clinton. Go look at the WikiLeaks emails. You can actually read the emails there. It's not just some paraphrased telephone call by CNN that you have to trust. Load of baloney out there, guys. And, oh, I got in a big one on my end. Got in a fucking motorcycle accident. A little hit and run action here within the city limits of Denver. It always happens within a mile of home. I was going 40 miles an hour. Went over the bars. <laughs> so, you know, that doesn't end well. Guy speeds off into the night leaves me with a separated shoulder wearing this sling for a couple more weeks been getting some laughs off of it <laughs> well I'm, i call myself igor quasimodo i look like a fucking stegosaurus two days before you go in to try to be a model and your shit gets wrecked <laughs> that's a fun one that i'm dealing with but <laughs> i got hooked up with some what is it codeine and some oxys that i had to fucking take at the beginning of last month that shit was crazy i work downtown denver so the streets are literally flooding you have to wear swim trunks to work with all the homeless people there all addicted to opium i do not understand how you can live your life on this drug it just makes you sleep i didn't go like six hours without sleeping for a week that shit was terrible man it feels like you're in a time hole or something stay careful out there <laughs> you're 500 off from saving up for a car that you want and some motherfucker tanks you on a motorcycle. The universe always throwing you curveballs. Take it as you go, people. <laughs> We're trucking along. But during that week where I was sleeping like a fucking sloth, I ordered like 10 books off of Amazon. So you know we are getting stacked here for Nick's nonfiction. You got some fun content coming your way. About the author, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Stockton. Thompson, pretty badass middle name. He was born in Louisville in 1937. What is that, before the arch? This guy's freaking ancient. His parents said that he was always different. He was like an angry but charismatic kid. So you can be as angry as you want. Even in real life, you can be as much of a dick as you want. Take Donald Trump as long as you're charismatic. You gotta have something charming. Why does he make me laugh when he stands in front of a press conference room? Probably because he shouldn't be there. But it's something charming. It's something charismatic. If you even like watch an interview of Hunter S. Thompson now... <laughs> it's scary, but there is something charming about it. You don't know if this guy was the kook from birth like his mom is saying, or his brain is just fried from all the mescaline. He's like, all right, I, I won't open my mouth more than a centimeter if I don't have to to get my point across. I just talk like this all the time. It's very annoying. And you can see why the written word is this guy's chosen media outlet. <laughs> but he's not good for interviews. He wouldn't be that fun to hang out with. Johnny Depp does a really good drama for the movie and it's understandable they should really should have had subtitles for him the entire time though stockton start calling him that hunter's dad passed out passed out he died in his teenhood so that's when he said he got involved in the guns the liquor the girls 
<laughs> I spent a lot of time home alone, home alone when I was a kid. I one time my girlfriend she moved in the neighborhood. How convenient! I have her and another girl from the neighborhood over. I'm wearing an open robe with boxers underneath, and we're not doing anything. You know, we're underage kids, so nothing crazy is going on. My dad comes home, tells the girls to go home, and he goes, We have found you with sex and drugs and alcohol in this household. Where does this end up? Apparently, as a comedian with a broken arm in Denver at the age of 23. <laughs> Makes sense. Hunter gets into the crazy shit when there wasn't any male supervision. Drug, sex, and alcohol at 14. That's the name of my book. <laughs> Hunter excelled at sports. He's a scrawny guy, though, you see through the books and the movie and interviews. And he then just decided to excel in writing and writing on his own time. He would, like, rewrite entire novels. And he was the type of guy that kept everything. He has all, in some of the interviews I watched of him, he has, like, the old notes of when he was a kid. And he's like, this thing was a great inspiration. No. <laughs> this little piece of paper here was a great inspiration for me. It's my first editorial. Is your jaw wired shut? And so Hunter's about to graduate high school working for the paper and all that shit. But he's a rebel. He blows up a vending machine, a school vending machine, a week before graduation. Isn't allowed to graduate. <laughs> they threaten him with jail time. The only other option, they said, was you can enlist or you start your 18-year-old life, your real life in society in jail. And so, obviously, Hunter joins the Air Force and just works for the newspaper on base. It's like the 1950s. He's just chilling, making a little cash, working for the Air Force. I had a meme that went viral this month that goes, first panel. It was on MilitaryTimes.com, two articles. The headline was... <laughs> military recruitment numbers rise by targeting students in loan debt and then the next title was military suicide numbers at all-time high and it's like gee you wonder why wonder why it went viral it doesn't take a socio sociological psychologist to fucking draw these lines together man when you take these debt prisoners and put a gun in their hand it's not gonna be long until they turn the gun around hunter would have a lot to say about this type of shit i'm sure we'll get into it in the actual book book Let's get through the about the author. Hunter's more notable writings. This one is the all-time bestseller. Of course, we have it here on Nick's Nonfiction. Also wrote The Rum Diaries and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. That was when he was following around Nixon and that whole impeachment. So Hunter knows every few years when there's a Republican president, the Dems are going to have their conspiracy theory. And since they control the media, it gets the most traction. Obama birther didn't get that much traction. But since CNN is liberal, Russia collusion can last for three years. And me talking about Jeffrey Epstein the biggest fucking truth bomb <laughs> goes away in 30 days it's crazy hunter moved to big sur california paying 15 dollars a month in rent we know my opinion on that tune in last month if you don't old people complain about bullshit when they literally had to pay a dollar a day for rent hunters living in big sur paying jack shit writing every single day and so he gains popularity with the surfers out there and he writes the and that was when he wrote the rum diaries and he just like toured around with it he didn't publish it he just made money off of it for a while publishing it in local publications that's a pretty good format it's like a comics format for journalists <laughs> you live in a bunch of different cities and pitch them your local stories hmm san francisco five percent diabetes raised per year you could literally write that story about any city in america i think i just found my my next hustle for the next 20 years 
Hunter's done with Big Sur, 60s, he moves to Columbia, finds his wife, then they move up to, what's that, Ashbury place called the Hippie Movement, somewhere in San Fran area. Hunter gets endowed in the hippie community, and then in 65, he infiltrated the Hells Angels, complete opposite, he went into the heavy drinking, meth doing, motorcycle riding, not crashing, awesome people. <laughs> And he uh, got published by Random House. That was his first big published book. <coughs> and then after that, maybe too much for him riding with the big hogs. He moved out here to Colorado, Woody Creek Canyon, right outside of Aspen. And he got a hundred acre ranch balling out with all of his guns and ATVs and alcohol. And he had wild peacocks he was known for in Aspen just roaming around. They were his. And Hunter ran for mayor in aspen he ran as a joke but he almost won and he ran on like some bullshit platform talking about the american dream but literally he was just charismatic it doesn't <laughs> you could preach anything on the campaign trail he was just saying the most basic thing that any politician can say i believe in the american dream which is what Work until you die that's every country's dream everywhere it's freedom that's the real dream but my point bringing that up, not for no reason, is Hunter's fucking oozing with charisma. That's probably how he got out of all these, like, cop interactions on the streets of Las Vegas. It's people like him. And while he was living in Colorado, this is when he took those actual road trips to Las Vegas. So, you know, in the book and in the movie, he's talking about, we drove from California to Las Vegas. You lying, boy. You were living in Colorado. Hunter's life starts to really fall apart. <laughs> He's blowing deadlines, just making massive expense reports. You'll see for this trip, I'll save it till the end, but he expenses a lot of money for a less than a week trip. He's saying he needed that much to write a 5,000 word story about Las Vegas. You wouldn't want to be the one having to finance his writings. Hunter got a divorce, lost his 15 year old son, and then, you know, wrote his own ending to the story fired a 45 magnum into his mouth and that's the end of hunter s thompson he had his last book the hawaii marathon which was a little journalism about some marathon they do he um he picks like the coolest events in everywhere and covers them and so while hunter was just like a creative writer he was for activism he believed in getting involved in your local level politics you can win the mayor slot if you want to you don't have to take money from people you don't have to you just have to have time, and time is money, so you don't want to be bought off. Luckily, Hunter bought himself off. He wrote his own stuff, had enough money to just be mayor and put the work in. And so let's get into this damn thing. It's a two-part book. If you've read it before, seen the movie, he goes to Las Vegas, gets creeped out, and then goes back. So part one, he goes, leaves, and then part two, he gets it right. Chapter 1A, take off. They are ripping it. And tripping it 100 plus miles an hour through the desert, racing to Las Vegas, as you do in any road trip. It's a race. It's not just a road trip. You're trying to make the best time. You're swapping off driving with your buddies. You need to be the Formula One best driver in the vehicle. Why? There is no reason. Manlyhood. Hunter and Horatio, Horatio Alger, his attorney, who he has taken this trip with, are being chased down by what they think are bats in the middle of the, the desert in the middle of the daytime. They are on a lot of drugs and hallucinogenics. 
the book is known for its illustrations and that's tied into the movie like the shirts the people wear in the movie are some of the illustrations from the book a lot of good easter eggs like that the bats are some of the most famous like reoccurring little things you see the one of those dark symbols that pop back up because they are on so much drugs i'm thinking their brain is reproducing that feeling of when you run up the stairs as a child and it feels like doesn't feel like you are convinced there is a demon chasing you up the stairs about to grab your ankles and drag you back down the dark stairs that is what it feels like for these people driving through the desert in the middle of broad daylight controlling a four-ton vehicle going over 100 miles an hour dangerous do not operate heavy machinery under the use of this drug we got Hunter's drug loadout for us, direct quote. This is like what he opens the movie with, and they show multiple times. They have like an x-ray vision when he's in the cop convention. He is holding this suitcase with all of these drugs. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two dozen amyls. Amyls? Amyls. These guys are ready for more than a week in Las Vegas. They're ready for a friggin' <laughs> a nuclear fallout shelter situation of drugs. You could send a man to an insane asylum with this suitcase. <laughs> They're ready to go fucking deep. And you're wondering, how do you drive under the influence of all of these things? Carefully and barely, they made it out alive. They would switch off... As soon as the other guy just felt like he was vibing a little too hard. What's important on a road trip? Music choice. Unfortunately, the only music they had was Sympathy for the Devil on repeat because it was the only tape in the car. In the movie, they showed that they had the radio on the whole time. I don't know if the radio works in the middle of the desert. We got satellite radio now. Not something we have to be thinking about. And you're probably wondering before I said... Hunter's in the middle of the desert doing all these drugs with his attorney. Yes, this guy knows how to get around the law. He's read all the books, so his like catchphrase is, as your attorney, I advise you to do another hit of acid. He says that within the first five minutes of the book. So this guy's not full of good ideas, but he does keep Hunter scot-free from the law. And one of the things he does in the car is just pour beer all over himself as a tanning agent. Which makes even less sense considering the fact that he's Samoan. I think Hunter kept calling him. He has a very racist style of writing. And he's like, this fat, freaking greasy Samoan keeps pouring beer on himself to try to get tanner. You don't even need to be tan. Can tan people get skin poisoning? That's something they don't even have to think about. White privilege? Melanoma? That's not privilege, son. I should get some victimhood points for that. The boys come across their first hitchhiker, but Hunter very clearly stated to the kid, we are going to Las Vegas in search of the American dream. Do you want in or not? How do you say no to that? <laughs> and through the book, the big theme is like, what is Hunter looking for? Nobody knows what the fucking American dream is. It's a farce. You're being sold. Holy shit, man. You're being sold nothing. It's the best sale of all time. You didn't have to invest in any capital or any product to actually sell or a service to sell people. That's crazy. Hunter and Horatio, they are in no state of mind to be taking other people in, into the vehicle and putting them at the risk that they are at as well. 
and they're concerned about getting to Vegas in time for the next day for this like dirt bike dune buggy race, which is the biggest in the world. I mentioned before how Hunter's last book covered this Hawaii marathon. Hunter goes around and finds the coolest events in America and just covers them like... If I was a friggin' free-range, freelance journalist with unlimited funding, I would go to, like, one of those cheese wheel races in Europe or one of those soapbox towns in Norway where they create their own Pinewood Derby and race them down and break their spines and shit. I would not want to go to that dirt bike race, though. That sounds like an awful time. There's no stands. You're sitting in a desert. There's no refreshments. There's no speakers. You have nothing. This is like I've heard from people who have gone to NASCAR events who aren't NASCAR fans because I don't hang out with that many NASCAR fans. It's like a terrible event. They say they never want to go again. You go and the decibel level is by definition deafening. Like you should wear earplugs if you're going to a NASCAR event. Every 30 seconds you hear... (laughs) While... A 500-pound man is spilling 32 ounces of Budweiser on your brand-new Jeff Gordon t-shirt. And people are fucking pushing you in bleacher stands. You don't even get a seat in NASCAR. (laughs) Those people treat their fans like fucking cattle. You can listen to Nick's nonfiction anywhere you want. Sit in a recliner. Well, let's wrap this shit up. And so why are they going to Vegas? They need to get to this dirt bike race, which Hunter Thompson thinks is going to be the best story ever written. Maybe that's the American dream. Creating the best story. True. Maybe that is. Our biggest export is our media, Hollywood, and the media. So we're pretty good at making stories up, Americans. Let's go to chapter 2A. All of these chapters' names are long as hell. And it was a three-page chapter, so we're going to be boining through a lot of these. Chapter 2A, the seizure of $300 from a pig woman in Beverly Hills. Portrayed in the movie, this was like a flashback while he was talking to that hitchhiker in the vehicle. Back in Beverly Hills, he was able to get 300 bucks from some lady in the polo club. Real fancy uh, country club that they hung out with to make bets with other guys and acquire drugs. The lady there was telling him, basically, you're not going to have enough money for a motorcycle. So when you get to this dirt bike race, you're going to be covering it yourself. And when Hunter gets to this race, he sees, like, other reporters and jeeps and shits. And he's like, man, I'm supposed to be a good journalist, but I don't even have the actual funding and the actual equipment to cover this story. I'm about to go get more fucked up and do some more gonzo. <laughs> In this three-page chapter, Hunter dug into his own existential question. Why the hell am I going to Las Vegas right now? Why did I take this story, this extremely vague story, writing about the American dream? I have no idea what I'm going to sell to this journalist publication. I'm probably going to give these people gobbledygook. And so he's actually putting pen to paper. What is the American dream? Is it free enterprise? And he's talking about that is exactly what Las Vegas is. It's all the flashing lights, like... You know in gas station windows, you're not supposed to cover more than like 40% of the windows with stickers because then technically there could be like, you could have a hostage inside. People cannot see through the windows. No gas station in America abides by that law. Everybody breaks these fucking laws. It's just what decides to get enforced, what's hip to law enforcement that week. And Las Vegas is the embodiment of the free enterprise, of the... Of the unlimited 100% advertising. 
anything goes. Like the way casinos are designed are to trap you inside the casino. There's like no right angles on the carpets on the ground because they don't want you to have to think about turning. They want to lead you into machines, into restaurants, into consumerism. So is free enterprise the American dream? Maybe it is, and maybe it just got out of control, and it turns into this Times Square fucking overwhelming marketing mecca. But he has a point. It's only in the rich countries. It's only in America and Saudi Arabia where we have oil money or fucking war gun money where we could just go have a race in the middle of the desert because fuck it. Because we want to. They're building islands over in Saudi. It's only in the richest countries where we have enough bottom feeders to prop up the consumerism that you have enough then luxury and exuberant wealth to be wasted on shit like dirt bike races in the desert that then gonzo journalists can go and cover. It's like everything in America, we just take shit to the next level. And so while he was talking to this Beverly Hills polo club lady, they were running all around L.A. picking up stuff for the trip, picking up recording equipment. That was like one of the most important things aside from the drugs that Hunter said he needed. He's like, if I'm going to write a story, I need every conversation. I need a lot of my thoughts recorded. I need all that shit so I could go back and have all the best. It's like you've heard notepads as like butterfly nets for your thoughts. Because otherwise the butterfly is going to fly away and you always, and then that thought is gone forever. Hunter knew it. He knew when he's going to be deep on some psychedelics, you're just going to need a recorder because you're not going to be able to write that shit down. And the last thing that he's racing around LA for, for whatever reason, was a priest robe. He's like, I need a priest robe. We need it for this trip. I'm going to be so strung out. I just need to be wearing this around Las Vegas. <laughs> I went to some frat parties at Penn State. That's all you have to say. That probably puts visions of your head of date rape and the white devil. In my head, it puts in a McDonald's playhouse, but for adults. The most fun you could ever have. People would wear priest robes. People would wear hospital gowns. People wear overalls with nothing underneath. <laughs> Two parties. And that's because the kids, the frat kids, are aware this is the most stupid, unreal environment that will ever exist just based around party. And so Hunter has that wherewithal going to Las Vegas. <laughs> He's like, this is the dumbest fucking town, most party-heavy town in America. Not dumbest. Sorry, Las Vegas. I need to bring my A-game when I go there. So he's trying to get a hold of a priest robe, all kinds of dumb shit, and he's bringing the best drugs. It's like when you go to these places, you bring the Ciroc, you bring the best liquor. He's bringing his best self to Las Vegas. So him and Horatio hop on that smog-filled Pasadena highway, and they get headed east. This will take us to Chapter 3, our arrival in Las Vegas, our first arrival, Strange Medicine on the Desert. A crisis of confidence, Hunter calls it. Right before they kick the kid out of the car for his bad vibes, he's like, oh, this is my first time in a convertible. I cannot believe this. And Hunter gives him a little speech like, convertibles are the only way to travel in America, man. This is how we do it. This is the only way Americans were meant to go about the road. It's a truly different experience. I've driven Jeep Wranglers, which my mom had sold out from under me when I went to college. I've ripped motorcycles around unsafe speeds. Hunter 
like it makes me wonder what other things in his writings I am missing because that resonated with me just because I have had the experience and you know his experience are that much more authentic <laughs> okay that's how that's how you read a book but anyway that's cool if you could give somebody that experience of riding in their first convertible of giving them their first motorcycle ride do it making someone do their first open mic giving someone their first joint that's why people are always so obsessed about making other people smoke weed it's because they don't have other things to get the person interested in <laughs> And so the kid hops out and Hunter continues on his car rant. He's bragging about how Americans buy these big trucks and cars and for what? We don't haul anything and we die on the road more than anyone. Hunter making some good points. This is what journalists should really be talking about. I have a massive bit about how drunk driving is a fucking scarecrow. It's not more people die from drowsy driving. More people die from driving under the influence of sleep medication. It's just easy to point a finger at that. And so Hunter's doing that critical eye. He's going, why do Americans buy these pickup trucks? We don't do manual labor. <laughs> and we kill ourselves in more of these crashes. Like people say when they buy a big car, I'm going to have so much more control on the road. And if I get into a crash with a smart car, just you watch. I'm going to crush them like a Coke can. You're probably going to die. You're going to get T-boned because you don't pay attention to where you're going, asshat. The accident I got into, I could attest to this, though. The guy, he cut me off going left. I was going straight. I would have hit his vehicle, but he saw I was on a 150 bike. I would literally have made a dent, maybe, and dented my forehead and skull more than I would have done anything to his paint job. So he took the calculated risk and fucking destroyed my body rather than stopping his vehicle. So looking at it with the critical eye as Hunter would, if you're going to have the big vehicle, fucking use it for its intended purpose. Otherwise, you're just dumping more CO2 in the atmosphere. Talk about how climate change is such a big deal. Yeah, now I could ride on you for that one. I don't even give a fuck, but the drugs start to catch up with them. No more fancy topics to talk about that had like a laughing fit that lasted two pages about why are we in the middle of the desert right now hunter and horatio they're like we if the car breaks down right now we are gonna die we are sweating at profuse rates that nobody nobody's gonna have a water cooler that drives by or going to be able to get us to our destination unless we rip it 100 miles an hour that's the only way we're gonna be saved it's a scary thought to have i've driven through wyoming like six hours of nothing, of just a rest stop every hour. Maybe sometimes less than that. So if you miss gas, you're fucked. It looks like the moon, man. There's nothing. You just see in the distance, not even mountains. They're just like <laughs> craters. It's like tiny little hills and barely vegetation. It's gray and it just keeps going and going. You feel out of place without a spacesuit on. And it's Wyoming. And then the only people that you do see are cops trying to extort you for speeding through this dangerous abyss. So there's fucking moon pirates. <laughs> there's only real conspiracy theorists use the term moon pirates. Get out of here with your Russia collusion. So what do you do when you start having a panic attack on drugs in the middle of the desert? You start blasting sympathy for the devil. Calms them down. Gets them to Las Vegas. But Hunter doesn't like to be calm. We know that very much. So what he does is grab a nice clean rag. 
Not to wipe himself down from the mescaline sweat, he fills the rag with ether, just soaks it in it, and then stuffs it under the accelerator of the car. So, you know, when he's accelerating, it's a little bit of a reward. He gets a release, all that ether rises up, gives him a nice little blast to keep on trucking. So the drugs get even more deeper and deeper. They're pulling drugs on each other, just yelling at each other. But it gets them through this boring-ass car ride. How much more fun can you try to make that? And when they get to the hotel, Hunter is like eight tabs recently deep, and their room is not ready. So they head up to the casino and just do a little gambling and a little observing. And this is when you see like a lot of the lizard visuals in the movie. This is when they're still all on all of their psychedelic drugs and observing everything that's just going on. And Hunter and Horatio are reminded that they need to get in contact with Lacerdo, which is their Spanish connect. He's a Portuguese writer that they just need to try to touch base with before the big race. So that'll take us to chapter 4A, Hideous Music and the Sound of Many Shotguns, Rude Vibes on a Saturday Evening in Vegas. They finally get into their room and it's midnight and they start ordering some food. You've been trucking through. They've had the sun beating on their head. Hunter luckily had his bucket hat, but Horatio is taking some. There you go. Melanoma. He's fine. (laughs) They need some nourishment. They order four quarts of rum, like 10 sandwiches. The attorney was assisting on 10 grapefruits. I'm pretty sure it was. And the whole thing, he was like, we need the vitamin C, the vitamin C, the vitamin C. Guess it's a Samoan thing. I do take those little vitamin C emergency packets when you start to feel sick. Godsend. Those things are awesome. Maybe tenfold grapefruits does the trick better, though. And then Horatio gives another one of his uh, attorney advice. He goes... As your attorney advised you to start drinking a little bit more, it's going to cut the effects of that acid, which I don't think is true at all. When you're on, <laughs> from what I've heard, when you're on acid, you just feel everything a lot more. So you're going to be feeling that hangover a lot more there, Hunter. An eight-tab trip with a quart of rum in your system, but the alcohol does help him pass out. And they wake up bright and early. They say they get loaded on just about anything you could find. And they start driving. This is when you get that quote. There we were. Ripped. Twisted. Stoned. Good people. That's like in the trailer for the movie, that quote. I don't know what so. Maybe the time being everybody was still in the mentality of bad eggs do bad drugs. They keep driving by this gun range that's like right off the strip and hunter's like this is a stupid fucking idea why is there a shooting range in the middle of this basically shopping mall that's like in times square if you had a shooting range and hunter is a very big gun advocate as you remember they bought a gun with them to las vegas in his colorado ranch in aspen he had a lot of firearms hunter's an american he believes in the second amendment but He's able to recognize, what are we doing here? We're selling guns to the dumbest people at the worst time when they're drunk or hungover at best. And you think about this was written in 1971. How hard does this foreshadow the Mandalay Bay Massacre? I don't want to bring that into the show. It's supposed to be a fun episode, but there's a time and a place for shit like that. 
I've been to the Aurora Mall out here in Colorado. Aurora, Colorado. This is where the Joker movie shooter was. The original Joker movie, the Batman. Kid shows up alone. Crazy hair shoots up a movie theater. Now, nobody in Colorado can go to see the Joker movie alone because of this kid. In the Aurora Mall, same town. They didn't even show that Joker movie in that theater, in the Aurora, Colorado theater, in hopes that this would happen again. The terrorist won. <laughs> Literally, the terror lives in Aurora, Colorado. He won. In the Aurora Mall, there are two weapons stores. I'm not even... I couldn't believe... My jaw was on the ground when I walked in there. I spent like... 10 minutes in there it was the safest place i felt in the mall in case something went down you could buy a long sword a samurai sword a hidden blade a switchblade a cane sword a fucking shillelagh man you could buy body armor there was everything in these fucking stores and you're in the middle of a mall i'm like what are we talking about these guns and stuff why are there swords we could break out into a medieval braveheart reenactment you start at one end of the mall our stuff will start at the other a food court food fight full out to the death what are we doing people what are we doing <laughs> All the pieces of that puzzle is there somewhere. I mean, there's a fucking knife store in the mall, period. <laughs> so Hunter's talking about firearms on the Paradise Strip. <laughs> Probably not the best idea. He called this shot. He called the friggin' Mandalay Bay shooting 30 years in advance. And Hunter cursed out a couple of people outside of the gun club. So they're like, let's get out of town for a little. This was stupid. Why? <laughs> now the car is a little hot. They've been like driving like idiots up and down the strip too and they're in a cherry red convertible time to lose a little bit of heat that'll take us to chapter five covering the story a glimpse of the press in action ugliness and failure we are off to the races here this is the chapter where we do get to cover the mint 400 forgot the name there mint 400 <coughs> deserve that that sounds like an old-timey race name all right welcome back everybody to the mint 400 Please refrain from squeezing your horns and cranking your engine during the race. Thank you. So chapter was called Covering the Story. What did they teach us in TV production? 99% of the stuff that you shoot will never, ever, 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 ever be used. Nothing makes it to final cut. It's like um, everybody complains about modeling, about how everything's so fucking touched up. Are we never going to be allowed to watch a TV show again? Every fraction of a second of that is combed over by a team of 10 people. Think about a movie. <laughs> the lips, the audible isn't even real. It's just layered over. They're not actually saying what you're hearing. You're just seeing it synced up very well. What are you supposed to do? Not watch movies? I got to see them whip around the Wilmington news truck. Murder Town, Wilmington, Delaware. Probably had to take it for a car wash to get the blood stains off before they bought it to the university. They have insane amounts of equipment. And when you see what gets put together, it looks like a three-year-old with a camera could do these things. And so Hunter S. Thompson knows this. You don't need all the fancy equipment to get the best story. It's better if you stack the deck and load your brain, the best tool you have, with the most chemical enhancements possible to make for the best story. That's his theory. 
they get to the desert a little after sunrise after they're done trolling the strip and the race doesn't start until midday so they go for a desert beer you know a little sandy desert beer and it was like 8 a.m you said and every single person there was drinking beer that is a good old american event 7 a.m everybody's on the same page we're doing it today yeah beer from the start fuck coffee let's just go beer and a lot of the people at the bar hunter was saying got there just from bus tickets that were purchased off of the Las Vegas Strip. This is an American dream to me already. It's an event. <laughs> this bought back some Anthony Bourdain vibes for me. I was a big time Parts Unknown fan, Anthony Bourdain fans out there. One of his pieces was about a chicken. Like a, they would do a chasing of the chickens like they do running of the bulls in Spain. It was for Mardi Gras. Everywhere in the country, everywhere in the world, I was saying before, they roll wheels of cheese in Switzerland, and in Norway, they race boxcars. In Louisiana, we chase chickens, and in Nevada, Las Vegas, high rollers, a lot of money, they race dune buggies. I was thinking, you see a lot of this wealthy people shit on Instagram, like the people with the hoverboards over the water, and the wakeboarding. Why don't people do sandboarding like a dune buggy that pulls you on a sandboard i've heard from people that do sandboarding there's some of that here in colorado it's painful like when you fall on snow it doesn't really hurt when you fall on sand you get <laughs> it's like sandpaper and it's 98 degrees so maybe that would be why we don't do wakeboard sandboarding <laughs> that and the tires would just be spitting sand up in your space there's no wakes to ride <laughs> all right that is a bankruptcy idea right there most of what you shoot won't make the final cut scrap the idea back to the drawing board it's noon the race is about to start and hunter's like a hundred feet away from the track and he still cannot see at all what is going on there's just so much sand being spit up in the air and it's four hours later and the race is still going on so he does a little bit more drinking he finds the other guy who um lacerdo or whatever and gets in like his jeep with him is able to ride around and get a little bit of a better view of the race but even lacerdo even these guys with the better equipment still couldn't tell who's in first place you don't know what's going on with this race some of the racers probably didn't even know is what hunter was saying like there's so much dust that these guys are just inhaling and they're sitting in these 150 degree dune buggies there's no way they have a concept of reality after eight hours of huffing sand so Hunter's kind of pissed. He got to see what it would be like to have the best view through the drive-around Jeep. And he realized this doesn't make for journalism. This doesn't make for a better story. So he heads back to the Mint Club, drinks heavily, smokes heavily, and writes heavily. This isn't going to be the only American dream. Maybe it's part of it, but he learned here that the gear isn't everything. It don't matter. We got chapter 6A here. The boys got to clear their mind a little bit. A night on the town. Confrontation at the Desert Inn. Drug frenzy at the Circus Circus. Throughout Hunter's Night on the Town, he's always... He's not going to bring his... <laughs> the size of a recorder back then was like a boombox, so he couldn't bring that to write. But he's still taking notes on kino cards, on receipts. And what does he learn this night? What does everybody learn their first night in Vegas? For losers, Vegas is a very, very mean town. Not very forgiving. Hunter knew many men that are $30,000 in debt. Just looking down the barrel of some high-powered Las Vegas collection agency waiting to be served or detained gambling addiction is on the rise too but it's swept under the rug because there's this 
online gambling shit right now, but it's one of the fastest growing epidemics in America just because it's so accessible as well. Hunter would have loved to write about that now too. He kept referencing the marijuana billboard, the famous one when you drive into Las Vegas. It has the three blackjack cards, MMJ, and it says, Gamble with marijuana, get caught, and you lose your life. Some shit like that. But now it's legalized there. Think about Las Vegas. (laughs) If the U.S. stock market was to be embodied in a city, it would be Las Vegas. It's all just fucking funny money. Um, people are in debt to it, and what what can they give? They've already signed away their car and their house. They have nothing left to give. Go work in a private prison for a casino? That's not how it works. You ruin people. That's like the market. So Hunter and Horatio are bopping around from casino to casino. This is one of those famous scenes where he parks on the sidewalk, and he's so zooted in the movie. The parking attendant's like, you can't park here, and Hunter's like, what, is this not a reasonable place to park? And the guy's like, you're on a sidewalk. Hey, rimshot. He had a good line about how he drove by a place called Hot Slots, and he couldn't tell. Hot Slots, is it a casino or is it a strip club? <laughs> I think if I had a strip club slot casino, why aren't those the things in itself? I would call it Nick's Nickel Slot. I could chill around for some nickel slots and some... uh, Yeah, I'm going to stop that there. Righteous. After he parked on the sidewalk, Hunter thought it was an appropriate thing to do some more ether, which he described in the moment as taking a back seat in your mind. Your spinal column is no longer in contact with your brain. It's just doing your own thing. You are Mr. Skeleton, but you are along for the ride. This is how I've heard kids describe Xanax. I have only like half the pill just to see what it's about. This is like if you have kids, you don't say, say no to everything. You're going to be a Puritan. I'm going to brainwash you. Take half. That's a more realistic thing to say to someone. Take half. Fucking see what you feel like. It felt like that opium shit I'm talking about, man. You ju- you don't feel like you're in control. And that's like the worst feeling for me. I do fucking stand-up comedy. I always want to be in control. It's like people in the fraternity, we'd go on retreats. You take a zanny, they zan out. Like you're not there anymore. You're a robot. And a lot of times it's like a fighting PCP bath salt robot some scary shit going down and this is how hunter's saying he's doing freaking ether in the middle of a casino that's not somewhere you don't want to be in control you might as well just hand the casino your wallet hunter does a little trip report again he goes being in this town on psychedelics is nearly impossible it's hard enough to be in that town when you are sober and have your bearings and not walk around with money flying out of your wallet there's a billboard of a 200 foot tall man in las vegas that you could put your friggin face on what kind of black magic is that like if you took a caveman and showed him that 200 foot tall person it would melt their mind you're you're in the same vicinity there and so the attorney taps out horatio he says the fear is getting me, hombre. He called it the fear, the fear. Like he's just having a bad trip now. So the attorney says he's swearing off the mescaline for a little bit. Security chases them out of the casino, and that's the end of their wild little night to blow off some steam. We got chapter 7A, Paranormal Terror and the Awful Specter of Sodomy, a flashing of knives and green water. It's time for a bad trip here. 
they go back to the mint casino and start gorging on the grapefruits this is why they finally came in handy you ever been high and eat a fruit <laughs> it's like you don't need to buy tickets to go to an amusement park but <laughs> take half a tab of acid and <laughs> take half a tab of acid and eat a fucking medley of fruit and you're gonna feel like you're visiting a million different planets <laughs> i've had some popular me- no i think that was a my story there was a my story on my page that got like 5,000 views. It was about a banana putting you in a hammock. And it was like when you eat a banana when you're tripping balls. People relate. Go get high and eat a fruit. <laughs> you don't need to gamble away your life savings in Las Vegas. <laughs> Horatio like goes to get ice. And he runs into a guy in the elevator who he winds up threatening with a knife. He's just not stable at the moment. He's freaking out in the room going, oh shit, what if this casino security comes after us what if the guy from the elevator calls on us i'm surprised people aren't more anxious in las vegas as it is think about how much more money people are walking around with them and then think about the fact that people are walking around with chips massive denominations in their pockets that anybody could cash in why aren't there more chip thieves in las vegas i think i'm finding some new lanes Hunter tries to turn on the radio in the hotel room to calm Horatio down. And what plays? Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Only the worst song ever. Joy to the people in the deep blue sea. Joy to you with me. Just some uh, fluff piece. And so Hunter's having like a crisis of his own now about how the music scene is dying out. It's all falling apart. Horatio is in the bathtub, and he's got the toaster in there. And he's like, put on my favorite song. Turn this garbage off. Put on my favorite song, and then I'm going to drop this toaster in. And that's going to be the end of it. <laughs> and so Hunter's like, all right, fine, close your eyes. And he starts up Glenn Campbell's Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Apparently his lawyer's favorite song. And so he's getting ready to die. He's like, at peace. And Hunter takes one of the grapefruits, full wind-up pegs it at Horatio's ball sack and he gets out of the tub starts screaming oh you motherfucker he's like chasing him around the hotel room about to stab him with a knife throw the toaster at him Hunter luckily had a can of mace with him of course they have mace and he herds him back into the bathtub tells him to do some smack do a little heroin in the bathtub that should even you back out man (laughs) and Hunter already knows he's in for a night of fucking introspective hell. He ate fistfuls of mescaline. Nothing you could do is gonna... You can't take the trip away now. You're in for it. Buckle up. (laughs) They looked in the mirror. If you have a Sherpa, if you have someone who's gonna tell you before you ever try to do mushrooms or something, they're gonna say, hey, don't look in the mirror. These guys looked in the mirror on acid. They did what you're not supposed to do. (laughs) Little cleanup having to go down. Chapter 8A. Genius. Round the world stands hand in hand, and one shock of recognition runs the whole circle round. Ari Lancaster. High City. That was the name of the chapter. I will definitely summarize it so it is understandable. That's what we do. Hunter used to live up the road from an acid chemist when he was in that Asbury Park, High Asbury. I'm from Jersey, so that fucks me up. Asbury Park, Hey Ashbury hippie community when he was in hippie land he lived up the road from an acid chemist who he thinks this guy made the transition to preternatural consciousness this is what i'm saying the 
chicks who think they live on the astral plane. They can go into the ethereal world. They could talk to demons, bro. Hunter thinks he knows one of these people who did enough drugs that they might have made it to this other place. My uh, <laughs> kid I work with was telling me about a PCP documentary because the fucking homeless people who come into coffee shops who have free range over the coffee shops they own equity now apparently they have like their maps to the universe that they're working on and you could tell they're probably on pcp and then go and do loads of smack and heroin at night <laughs> this this guy tried to fucking tell me once that we have military bases on mars and I'm like, bro, I fucking watch the documentaries about these things and try to hash out some of this. You're hearing this from Crack Dumpster Johnny. And I have better sources than that. We are in similar lines of thinking, but you're giving my people a bad name over here. <laughs> How the fuck did I get onto this? PCP. These people think they figured out the simulation. Um... <laughs> and so uh, Hunter thinks he found his closest guru which is this like this guy who was <laughs> talking to the elves and what he learned he picked up some like uh trip tips from this guy one of which was hunter would sleep with the static of his tv on which related him to basically just a fucking meditation it drowns everything out for him but you have heard creepy ass stories damn just got goosebumps fuck <laughs> about like watch poltergeist where the girl crawls out of the fucking static tv there are so many stories online you could hear about people like oh i fell asleep with the static tv channel on and a program came on where they were sawing people's heads off and they said tune in next week and it returned to static and i fell back asleep I can't remember if this was a fever dream. Like, there are so many stories of creepy shit like this. Or people like, I watched the static on the TV and I don't remember if I was dreaming or if I was sleepwalking, but I felt like I ascended to another astral plane. <laughs> I think I'm trying to tell you that um, TV static is a portal. That's what we're learning in this episode. We're going deep with Hunter S. Thompson. So Hunter turns on the TV static in this night of hell that they're having in this Las Vegas hotel room. And so there was a time that Hunter said he went on too big of a trip with this Asbury hippie, the guy that who was apparently on another plane. And he said that it fried his brain and he swears off acid for like six months. And then he goes to the Fillmore Auditorium in San Fran and does some shrooms. Game over. And Hunter is back into like the writing culture. He realizes what he wants to do. He doesn't want to fucking work in auditoriums forever. And he was talking about his mushroom times in San Fran, this chapter. And he said it was one of the most beautiful places in time. Because you could walk around the city and know, just know, that you are going to run into somebody who is just as high as you are. Pretty crazy. And the same kind of high. You're not trying to run into some PCP psycho when you're on a little shroom trip wandering around the hills of San Fran. It was a good place in time. This is what Hunter tries to capture in his writings. He dropped a big boy quote that always gets repeated, so it must have some significance. I'm going to be honest, not too sure why he had to put it in. It seemed a little cliche. History isn't a straight line. It's a cycle of humans building up to be taken over and torn down. And so we'll probably see another hippie park community pop up in the future with the same ideals. And then it'll be squashed by the wokeness 
and then that'll be squashed by the war on drugsness that'll come back eventually and around and around we go and nobody pays attention and this leads us to the most famous quote of this book to close out this chapter so now less than five years later you can go up on a steep hill in las vegas and look west and with the right kind of eyes you can almost see the high water mark the place where the wave finally broke and rolled back you don't really know what it means it seems pretty powerful though pretty sure what he's talking about and the interpretations i've heard is he's talking about that hippie movement and that love movement it made it so far the wave couldn't break it cannot possibly take over a place of consumerism and materialism and debauchery like las vegas it only made it so far so as these cycles repeat themselves as the love movement comes back and as the unity and fucking anti-war movement actually starts again hopefully the wave will grow bigger this time and it will be able to break chapter 9a no sympathy for the devil flight into madness a solo reflection hunter wakes up to the worst morning ever his lawyer is gone and he is alone with the worst hangover the worst bill the worst hotel room to clean up ever this is the original hangover hunter's going the irs is for sure on my tail by now i've used a ton of fake credit cards and i need to get out of the city because this car is hot this face is hot who is the one person that you would need to call in this situation your attorney who just ditched you your attorney and his uh, what was it horatio's catchphrase on the way in on the car ride was one toke over the line so what does hunter do he gets ridiculously high and his first line of thinking, he's getting a little whacked. He's going, all right, I got a pistol. That's pretty good. The lawyer wouldn't fly with one, so I know he definitely flew home. Otherwise, I wouldn't be without a gun. Putting a little bit of the pieces together of the hangover. And one of his priorities is going to be to get that pistol back to L.A. Because then that's his weapon. He gets to keep it. And Hunter remembers how he was just talking about before. Vegas is a town for losers. And he's looking in the mirror right now. I look like a fucking loser in a, a room service scattered around empty alcohol, drugs. He brought up in the chapter, humans live by the shark ethic. We eat the wounded. We're not physical cannibals, but we'll take your money if you're stupid enough to give it to us. Another one of his famous quotes, he goes, The only final sin is stupidity. So yeah, take your L's. Everybody takes their L's. If you don't, you're lying. But being fucking sitting in the stupidity, what's the definition of stupid? Doing the same thing and expecting a different result. The only final sin is stupidity. And then this little reflection chapter. I don't know how this came up. It's a little sporadic. That's why I'm keeping it to the storyline. Ideally, he was going how the military suicide rate is at an all-time high. Isn't that crazy how I just fucking bought this up again? It's because nobody believes in the mission. What was Vietnam? Nobody knows. Who was Nixon? Fraud. What is this 20-year Iraq war? Nobody knows. That's why everybody's killing themselves. He ended the chapter talking about an article he read about 100,000 pills stolen from a pharmacy in L.A. So he needs to get back to those streets and score some of those pills on the streets of L.A. <laughs> I said before, I work in a place where we see a lot of the homeless and the opiate addicts. You can tell when there's a bad batch on the street, baby. Hunter gets excited when there is a good stealage or leak of drugs on the streets in his hometown. Hey, he's into a subculture. 
So you can see he's building himself a case to get out of Vegas. We've got Chapter 10A, Western Union intervenes, a warning from Mr. Heem. New assignment from the sports desk, a savage invitation from the police. So people would get offended when they would offer Hunter stories, and he would almost always discard them. He's one of the most coveted creative writers in the country, so you can't be offended if he's going to turn your shit down. You just got to keep giving him more stuff until he bites. And Hunter's mentality was if that some editor 3,000 miles away doesn't like what this experienced journalist has to say, why would he find Joe Schmo's opinion interesting at all? People come to Hunter for his opinion, and that's it. You can't, <laughs> as the salesman, you can't say, oh, I'll just get that opinion elsewhere. No, you can't get Hunter S. Thompson's opinion anywhere other than Hunter S. Thompson. He gets a VIP fax from Dr. Gonzo back in L.A. saying that you need to stay in Las Vegas to cover the conference of district attorneys, which is like a four-day narcotics seminar. So just write a 50,000-word article about it. You love drugs, Hunter? Write 50,000 words about it. It's not going to be hard for you. Easy assignment. <laughs> this convention is the last place that a cop would look for a drug-riddled credit fraud fugitive who is like massively ripping off hotels right under their nose. So he's like, I'm more likely to get caught by some highway patrol cop who thinks he's being a hero and then digs into my friggin' identity rather than being around some guys who don't have their police hat on. They're not trying to make society safe at the moment. No, you're not trying to score points for your cop credit card. We get the game. You're against us. So Hunter's considering taking the work. He goes to the outskirts of Vegas for an early morning beer. You know how every great solo trip to Vegas ends by yourself in some outskirt town. <laughs> Getting a beer before you have to leave. <laughs> That'll take us to chapter 11. Oh, mama, can this really be the end? Down and out in Vegas with amphetamine psychosis again. He's looking the only road back to L.A. dead in the eye. U.S. 15. No, and he's going to what he called the Freak Kingdom, L.A. He often refers to it as that. And he decides to drive home shirtless. I was talking about Jeeps and open-air vehicles before. Boy, I've done some shirtless moped riding. I understand on a personal level why Putin rides horses shirtless. It's an unreal feeling of power and freedom. Just free air on your nipples, get real. And he's having his reflections from the first trip. I don't even know who won the dirt race. Not that that matters anything. Not that any of those papers written about the story went viral. But he didn't accomplish his goal. He's on 60 hours without sleep at this point. And he says a prayer to the Lord. Take care of me while I drive home because I am completely in your hands. Chapter 12A, The Ride. Hellish speeds grappling with California Highway Safety Patrol, mano y mano, on Highway 61. This chapter is going to be best portrayed in the movie. Not gonna lie, I don't know how to portray a cop chase over podcast. <laughs> One of Hunter's tips about being pulled over by a cop was like, don't show contempt. This is exactly what they want. They want you to, you're so powerful, officer, please, please give me mercy. They get off by that feeling. Give them a little fucking attitude. Make them work for what their work is. Don't give them the glory for shitting on you. But Hunter takes it a step further, as always. And his tactic was, 
make the fucker chase you at 120 miles an hour because they will usually give up. Have you ever driven a car 120 miles an hour? The thing starts to shake. If you do a hairpin turn, you feel like you can lose control of the entire vehicle. It's very, very dangerous. And no cop thinks a fucking $40 speeding ticket is worth their life. But they do think it's worth a little pat on the back and a little, hmm, I feel good, I got to reprimand somebody, and they praised me, and I made $40, and I got a check on my cop card. Make that bitch chase you at 120 miles an hour. Make him stand up to that oath that he took. Hunter says, when you get to the first exit, if this motherfucker is still on your tail, put your blinker on for a mile. You know, you'll pass that mile within a half a minute. But what is this fucker going to think? That you're going to go off the ramp at 100 miles an hour? Rinse and repeat. Do this a couple times for a few exits. And if he's still following you, Take the ramp at 100 miles an hour and then just jump back on the highway with your lights off. If that doesn't work, keep it going. You got hundreds of miles of highway to play with this guy. And within a couple minutes, he's going to be out of his jurisdiction. That's the entire point of the go 120 miles an hour thing. This guy doesn't care about how you drive. He wants to make money for his town. And so he does finally get pulled over. And what happens? Hunter does not care to sit in jail cells and wait for guys to wear stupid black judge costumes and only come in 9 to 5 on a Monday while people are sitting in fucking cages. Hunter pulls out his wallet and he's like, that was pretty fun, Chase Cop. I I speed, okay? You're not stopping that here today. How much money would you like? And he just bribes the cop. This is how it works all around the world. Americans are just so fucking brainwashed by the law that we play along. (laughs) We put the monkey suit on and go and sit in the justice room. Hunter's no longer bait. He's no longer a chum. He is a Vegas shark. Hunter is a hunter. And that'll bring us to part two of the book. Chapter 1B. These are all going to go a lot quicker now. He is admiring the pistol on the way back. Just driving. Wheel in left hand. Tooley in the other. And we're back on the road. So he retallies up the drug stash. Some of the mescaline pellets had disintegrated into a reddish-brown powder, but I counted about 35 or 40 still intact. My attorney had eaten all the reds, but there was quite a bit of speed left. No more grass. The coke bottle was empty. One acid blotter. A nice brown lump of opium hash. Six loose amos. Not enough for anything serious, but a careful rationing of the mescaline could probably get us through the four-day drug conference. I think that's more than enough there, guy. But on this trip back to Hollywood, back to Las Vegas, he buys a bunch of tequila and ether because you could just buy ether anywhere. And he was saying in the book, I'm astounded that you could just go into a store and buy these things, especially looking and smelling the way I do. He hasn't slept in 60 hours. This guy looks like a zombie. You can sell zombies, post-apocalyptic bomb equipment. That's not okay. Some guy came in to fix the espresso machine in my coffee shop, and (laughs) he takes the whole front of it off, and it looks like a car underneath him. I'm like, man, that's a lot. Like, you could basically just work in a mechanic's office and probably get paid, like, a lot more to fucking work on cars. I, I didn't say that exactly, but I was like, dog, why the fuck are you fixing coffee machines? And he's like, check this out. Not a lot of people know this, but connect this here to here, and you got yourself a pretty big bomb. I was like, what the fuck? 
I'm literally working with bombs every single day of my life. And now I guess the, I'm helpful post-apocalyptic or in a revolutionary environment. I know how to make a couple pretty big bombs. But I guess Hunter's saying all you need is freaking tequila and ether. <laughs> and he ended this chapter talking about a story. I hate these fucking stories. It's like the kid in ele elementary school who used to flip his eyelids. Guy did so much ether that he pulled his eyeballs out of his head. Okay? That's as bad as the drug trips are going to get on Nick's nonfiction ever. Fucking disgusting. Chapter 2B. Another day, another convertible, and another hotel full of cops. Horatio is coming back. We have not seen the end of Horatio Alger, his attorney. He's flying in from L.A. late afternoon, and he has to find a new car because, you know, that red shark is super hot by the cops. So Hunter meets him with a new Cadillac convertible from some bogus credit card that he was running pretty good with in Las Vegas. And he bought the car or rented it outside of town with this crap card and the guy tried to be a hero like the car salesman was like this card isn't coming up under your name sir um I, this is uh maybe criminal activity i think i'm gonna have to call the cops and hunter's like dude don't be a hero i'm going to get away with this okay you're just wasting your time and my time here and the cops time who could probably be saving some people and so while the cops were on the way hunter tipped a tip will fix anything. <laughs> I have a bit about this. He would go because my dad taught me how to play golf. So he's going to he'd be like, all right, you're going to pull up to the country club. But you're going to want to tip the guy that takes your bag, tip the guy that you pay for the round of golf, tip the guy that puts you on the first tee and then tip the shoe cleaner. My dad drops me off at the airport. All right, you're going to tip the bag handler. You're going to want to tip the TSA guy. You're going to want to tip the guy who feels your nuts. <laughs> but tips go a long way. Hunter snuck out front, would talk to one of the porters and was like, kid, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. Pull that white caddy around back at 2.05 exactly. So Hunter's like, um, sir, while you try to run that credit card, I'm just going to try to urinate really quickly, okay? And then the cops show up. Hunter runs around back, rips it 120 miles an hour in the white convertible. They got some fresh new wheels. <laughs> and Hunter pulls off a couple exits down to cool off. And he said the guy paying for a beer at the bar where he's chilling now literally pulled out a keychain of old credit cards. Like the bartender wasn't trying to be a hero. He's like, I will run whatever card. It's not going to come out of your wallet. It's not going to come out of my wallet. It's not going to come out of John Doe's wallet. It's going to come out of MasterCard's wallet. It's like, let Hunter take the card. It's a good story for you and your wife later. And what? You, you, you can't get fired for that. A guy stole a car. So what? It's like if anybody ever, ever threatened to pull a gun on me or hurt me for the money in my corporation's till, take it, son. Run for the hills. You Best of luck to you. They got some wheels, and Horatio and Hunter are back together. Chapter 3B, Savage Lucy, Teeth Like Baseball, Eyes Like Jellied Fire. I called this one their second first night. Horatio showed up at the hotel with a GD prostitute who had a dog. So he bought the whole friggin' circus with him from L.A. And the two guys are supposed to be going to another hotel to meet with like a VIP of the conference. But Horatio and his hooker are all strung out on acid. And Horatio's like, we're going to get through this. We always get through this, man. But 
we're just going to have to take Lucy with us. We have to take this stripper with us. Otherwise, she might get us in trouble. And Hunter's like, that's not happening, dude. We are not taking the stripper to a cop convention when the two of you are both on psychedelics. This is just Horatio's drug brain, like, thinking I have to take care of her because we got into this together. This is like how if you go out with the drunk girl who runs away, you kind of feel responsible. But it's not your fault. <laughs> That's not even like a going home thing with someone. It's like actively choosing to run away with the group that you are safe with. That's not even victim blaming. That's just idiot blaming. Yeah, hear that, Democrats? Idiot blaming. If I embraced one of the two political parties, that would be my right-wing persona. I'd be making shitty jokes like that. Hunter's solution to Lucy the Hooker was, Bro, let's drive her as far away from this hotel as physically possible. I'm thinking when she comes to, she's not going to put two and two together. She's going to have no idea who we were. You did not know who she was before this single day. She did not remember why she was in Las Vegas. We're going to be okay. <laughs> And in the movie, it didn't come up in the book, but in the movie when Hunter's leaving town, he sees the girl. But in the book, I'm saying the book is more nonfiction. He probably never saw this girl again because they just ditched her on the streets of Vegas. She's a hooker. Pretty sure she'll be doing okay in the streets of Vegas. So the two guys go for their meeting and they have a quaint first night this time. They're not doing all the drugs. They order a couple red salmons by the pool. You know, have some brandy kick it they're not doing bachelor party vegas this time takes us to chapter four no refugee for degenerates reflection on a murderous junkie the front desk is calling the guys at the flamingo saying they had two messages from duke in la and one to call a lucy in room 1600 at motel six so first of all duke is saying you guys heard about this vietnam war and hunter's like Shut the fuck up, you old bag of dirt. Why are you calling me to say, You heard about the war? Of course I've heard about it. Of course I have more informed opinions about it. Why not get paid for those rather than fucking shoot the shit with old Duke? So Lucy knows where they are and is coming to get them. Seems Horatio was a little bit loose with his uh, personal identity. And the guys are bugging out. Because Lucy could have both of them locked away for 20 years to life for drugging. And she could say raping. You could always say raping. If drugs were involved, it's just like a free fucking charge any girl could try to put on a guy. Oh, he fed me alcohol. Yeah, rape. I was raped. Eh, okay, maybe not full raped. A little alcohol with a side of date rape. It's <laughs> a shorter chapter. Chapter 5B. A terrible experience with extremely dangerous drugs. Lucy goes, She's. I don't know if she's just fucking with her head, but this is the perfect thing to say. She goes, the cops will be waiting for you guys at the convention tomorrow. A convention full of cops? That's the ultimate tip. <laughs> you don't know who you're looking for. You don't know, are they going to be undercover? Are they going to be dressed up? Is everybody undercover? And you know these guys are going to be doing drugs because it's what they do. So they're going to be a little bit paranoid during this thing, and they probably deserve it for flying a prostitute out of her home city and just leaving her for dead. And the reason the name of this chapter was called Extremely Dangerous Drugs was because Hunter tried adrenochrome. It's like adrenaline. I have no idea. The lawyer said he got it in the book, didn't specify how, don't know how people get this in real life. 
But he said that he, he got so bombed, it was like a combination of every drug that he's ever done. And they just went into the desert and like smashed shit and went crazy all night. In the movie, they portray this. He does the adrenochrome and then he wakes up in the hotel room and it's like totally unrecognizable, like destroyed. And it doesn't even look like a hotel room. It, it looks like a set. It's pretty crazy how they portray that entire thing. Um, the adrenochrome thing, if you've never heard of that, there's some conspiracies into that as there are for everything. But it's like that's why they fucking abduct children. It's because it's the most potent chemical and it's harvested from your adrenal gland, which is in your brain. And it's like, you know, people do adrenaline when they have a um, allergy attack. If you take adrenaline, it clears everything up. When I went into surgery for this shoulder, they gave me saline. They gave me all these types of shit that cured the common cold. I'm telling you, I went in there with a cold. And within a few hours, I was like, why aren't you guys selling this shit? You would be fucking million, billion, trillionaires if you just like marketed this conspiratorial mind we are this chapter mucinex walgreens would not ex exist if people had access to these saline bags and you could cure your common cold you have to buy nose fucking spray and then tissues and then advil and like the entire pharmaceutical industry would not exist if the common cold did not exist and so <laughs> <laughs> fucking any surgery center in your city will cure you of the common cold but so will adrenochrome if you and alex jones want to fucking abduct some children with interdimensional child molesters or whatever that's the nick to extreme to mild to just drug level on the uh adrenochrome takes and that'll take us to chapter 6b getting down to business opening day at the drug convention while the guys were waiting in line for the convention the anxiety starts to build maybe that little bomb that lucy dropped on them the little booby trap she placed in them someone's watching you but it's probably just like the line for a roller coaster if anything they're like nervous because they're getting ready for the ride and it was portrayed really well in the movie like it aligned with his writings how these people were uninformed and the convention itself was not ran well. You have cops running it. You don't have hospitality people running this convention. So there were like 1930 speakers placed in terrible places around the auditorium. And so people were facing the speakers instead of the speaker at the podium. It's just a complete mess. You get a lot more appreciation for a comedy club when you go in and you see how mic'd the room is and how everything is poignantly set up perfectly for a brief speech it was pretty dope the first speaker at this convention was talking about how lsd can give you flashbacks six months after ingesting it i wish if <laughs> you pay for a five dollar tab of lsd and then you get a free trip six months later where's this high quality shit son the speaker went on to marijuana levels there is five levels of marijuana consumption and involvement. They did this exact scene in the movie. Cool, groovy, hip, or square. And it's just some like old 50-year-old cop who's talking out of his ass. Like, the kids think if you smoke once a week, you're groovy. If you smoke twice a week, then you're cool. And it's like, you have no idea what the drug culture is. Hunter says later, the only thing you got right about this convention was starting to call it the drug culture rather than the drug war. They know nothing is his point.
they have one of the most famous quotes in this book about how marijuana addicts your pants will be crusted over with semen and their eyes will be red with rape on their minds every single person i tell that i smoke weed says i didn't think that you would smoke it's all about perception dude you cannot tell when you it's like it wouldn't be that hard to go undercover that's exactly what hunter s thompson is doing and he's taking undercover to the next fucking level it's not that hard, man. Just put a collar shirt on and changes everybody's entire perception about you. Some simulation shit. So Hunter and Horatio cannot sit through this nonsense because the guys are getting laughs too. They're like, these marijuana addicts, this lady was so old, she went on a trip forever from one joint. And everyone in the room like erupts in laughter because they think that's a real punchline when it's a nonsensical word soup. You can't make a joke about marijuana if you don't know how it works. Hunter and Horatio were fucking disgusted. They went and watched the Fraser ali rematch was happening the same weekend. And this only exacerbated their trips. Like, Hunter is literally seeing all these cops as pigs. He's seeing them just as wife servants. They have a good scene portraying that in the movie. A guy arguing with a gay hotel attendant. And he's like, oh, I need to speak to a real fucking man because his wife is crying. And he's like, look what you did to the lady. <laughs> it's like the whole world is nerfing it so your wife doesn't get mad at you. And then the artwork in the book for these chapters, too, were pretty cool. They're like half pig, half people with high and tight haircuts that he was drawing. Really trippy shit. Chapter seven. If you don't know, come to learn. If you know, come to teach. Worlds collide, I would call this one. So the first couple hours of that convention, they pop in and out, in and out, just listening to people who can't tell like the difference between fucking mescaline and macaroni. They just said, weed makes you cum your pants. If that was true, I'd be smoking a lot more weed. So Hunter's going, these motherfuckers, what if I put one tab of mescaline in this fucker's coffee? Obviously, he's going, I would never do that, but he knows it would change... <laughs> Like, this guy would have to reevaluate his entire life. He's been living a lie. A more famous quote in the book, he goes, The man's medulla would attempt to turn itself off from the stimuli of some 350-pound cop necking his 300-pound wife watching a fake documentary about tetrahydrocannabinoid. And he knows, be, having tripped up and down the Las Vegas Strip at this point, he's like, this guy's mind would shatter if it was fucking exposed to that much input he wouldn't be able to operate at that high of a level he wouldn't know what to do with, with all of that information let alone it being his first trip let alone it being in the middle of las vegas let alone it being around all these people who he thinks are telling the truth but he's indoctrinating his life full of lies he's walking around thinking cannabis makes you cum your pants meanwhile there are people who give their kids cannabis so that they don't have seizures that's not living in reality you have to weigh both sides. And so Hunter is like, <laughs> these people know nothing. The people that do drugs know more about the controllers of drugs who are supposed to be the cops. They're the fucking wranglers of these chemicals in our society. They should probably know about what they're 
corralling, but they know nothing. And so Hunter's like, what if you could just blow one of these people's minds? What if I told these people about this 100,000 pill leak going on in LA? What if I told these cops about the fucking crank and heroin epidemic? Hunter was writing about this. He's like... My toe, no, my entire leg is in the drug scene. I am very well ingrained here. These cops do not know LA is going to look like a fucking zombie town in a couple decades. Hunter was saying this, and now you see tent cities in LA. Hunter was ahead of his time, man. He's one of these people that are so in tune with it all that they're fucking like transcending time. Like I said with that Mandalay Bay thing before, he called the shot. And so there was a little scene in the book where Hunter and Horatio do tell one of the cops at the bar in the hotel during the convention about what's going down in L.A. And he's like, I didn't need to know about any of that. I'm a beat cop. There's nothing I can do. I can't implement policy to try to get these pills off the streets. We just arrest people. And so Hunter's like, fuck, this is a story. This is not the American dream. This is not what I came for, but this is definitely a story. Chapter 8B, Backdoor Beauty. And finally, a bit of serious drag racing on the strip. What I call Drunk Diner. They are wrapping up their trip. The attorney is puking out the side of the car. The white convertible movie portrays puke all up and down that beautiful white caddy. They pull off the strip for a midnight coffee. And the attorney is fucking trashed. He's yelling out the window saying, Hey, you guys want to buy drugs? The stupidest thing you could yell out a window And this guy is an attorney, (laughs) so you know he's definitely not in the mindset when he's not even thinking about his job. On the other hand, though, no cop would believe this report. It's too extreme. Oh, yeah, some guy in a nice-ass $40,000 car. There was a 300-pound Samoan screaming, get your crack here. So Hunter's ready to drive a little stupid again, and he pumps up the PSI on the tires from 50 to 75. I don't know anything about PSI, but that's a 50% increase. And just think about it. You are glazing around the roads. He's driving on pumped-up donuts. And one of his better lines, he goes, In truth, I was nervous. He was going, if all four tires explode on him, at least he can say it was a recall. Because, you know, it was a brand new car and brand new tires. So why would all four explode on somebody? You wouldn't think, oh, he was drag racing down the Vegas Strip at 75 PSI. He's always thinking about the loopholes. And he was comparing pumping up the tires again to motorcycles. Because he went undercover with the Hell's Angel. Hunter knows all about riding. And he was saying, it's like riding in the rain. When you're riding in the rain, you could feel every fucking piece of gravel every rock that you're going over and you can feel if you're going to catch an edge like if you're if you've ever gone skiing or snowboarding (laughs) now we've freaking got two examples going if you're snowboarding and you catch an edge it's just a slide out and that can happen on a motorcycle especially if you got some dinky ass tires going and hunter is going for that intentionally and they're just hot dogging up and down vegas now a good goodbye And so they go off the strip because, again, they're definitely getting a little bit wanted by the police to a 24-hour diner now. And this is where the burnouts go. People that are, like, blackmailed off the strip. People that are looking to score some smack without a reference. You don't know anybody, so you go to the shittiest part of town. Another cool insight he had was going, Vegas is a time warp from the 50s. Rich people from Dallas and Denver will always choose there to waste their money 
That's pretty cool. I was talking about it being like a stock market city before. It's a city of luxury in a sense. You want to be that casino that all the surrounding states want to go to. And you hear that in Colorado. A lot of people going down to Vegas. So they are at the North Vegas Diner at 3 a.m. Both eat some more mescaline. And Hunter has the feeling that something bad is about to happen. The attorney, Horatio, chugs his first coffee. Which, who does that? People don't chug coffee. Not even iced coffee. And their ex-hooker waitress, who already hated them, she brings out some burgers for the boys. Horatio, in his mescaline, drunk, full-coffee-brained mind, writes on a napkin and throws it at the waitress. And she calls him a spick pimp. Apparently, he put an amount with a question mark for sex on it. An offer, like she was a hooker. In the movie, the napkin said, backdoor girl question mark i don't know if that's like code for what people would do back in the day for that but he just like disrespected this girl who is at her rock bottom which is like the worst thing you could do that she has nothing to lose and she tells him to get the fuck out he pulls a gun on her it's just a bad scene hunter gets him to drop five dollars on the table and they just get the hell out of there chapter nine breakdown on paradise boulevard den of dreamers He's uh, recouping that American dream search, and he's able to narrow it down now. He knows what he's not looking for. Definitely knows the American dream is not the chubby couple on the sidewalk visiting town paid for through their profession. It definitely doesn't look like it's him strung out on drugs and coffee looking for a story. That's probably not the American dream. But he has this article due for Duke, and he starts writing an article about how if you want to see how a story is made, you got to live it and give it names. It's hard to write Jack and the Beanstalk. All of those old tales are based off of stories to protect you or some type of shit. You, you got to base it off of something. You can't just fucking come up with the world's craziest story. It has to be based in truth. And that's what Hunter submitted to Duke, the birth of Gonzo journalism. He's like, this is what I was doing in Las Vegas. I was making the story. And he has a story to tell here. They find one more cafe to stop and get a coffee before Hunter drives Horatio to the airport. And they ask one more bartender, yo, what's the American dream? And he's like, if you go downtown to the old psychiatrist club, you're going to find a bunch of old men with money who peddled things, swindled people, and made it to the end on top. So that's probably going to be the closest consensus of what you're going to get the American dream is. Made it out on top is what the guy said. There's a consensus. They won whatever game is all collectively being played those are just seen as the most collective winners. So winning is the American dream then would be the biggest deduction we can make. Chapter 10B for us. Heavy duty at the airport. Ugly Peruvian flashbacks. No, it's too late. Don't try it. I call this one airport shuttle. Simple. They're just doing laps around the airport. Cannot figure out how to get in. In the movie, he just plows through the fence. But in the book, he's saying... I just drove over the tarmac. There weren't any planes landing. And this was pre-9-11. So I guess you could do whatever the hell you want. And Hunter said he has chased down many planes, even on the runway before. The only time he's ever gotten detained was when he had a bag full of cocaine when he was leaving Peru. So apparently they had three and a half minutes to spare. Hunter got to the time. But I'm thinking this is as gonzo as the story gets. I mean, this is before TSA, but come on. <laughs> the hunter runway express lane sure 
And so thus starts, Hunter goes back to the wrecked, shattered Flamingo Hotel and starts this 36-hour period of writing the events of this book. His main points that he came up with at the end was, if you're going to go to Vegas, don't dick around, go straight for the jugular and start off with some felonies. Start off with the small crimes because then the big ones won't be as big of a deal for you. And in Vegas, there are so many big crimes that the very small ones go unnoticed. Think about Vegas. There is a city of underground homeless mole people. Have you watched the documentaries? There are thousands of people living underneath the ground in Las Vegas. The cops got bigger issues on their hands to this day. You could steal a candy bar in Vegas. It's like if you kill someone in hell, it's not that big of a deal as if you kill someone here. It's like stealing a candy bar in Vegas. Hunter was talking to people there saying the criminal justice system in Las Vegas is like an assembly line. They have people that go in with the same charges over and over and over and over again. It's just how fast they can process the victims and get money. And Horatio says he is never going back to Las Vegas. This takes us to chapter 11, two left. Fraud, larceny, rape, a brutal connection with Alice from Linen Service. The whole point of this chapter was the room is fucking trashed, but Hunter was able to work out a deal with the uh, Linen Service girl, and they just put a story together. Hunter's a writer, creative writer. He's like, all right, we're going to say that some guys came in our room and did mescaline, broke everything, and then left, and you discovered it, and then we are going to split the insurance, you and me. And so both of them make money off this. The only thing that needed to happen was Hunter needed to write a creative story and trash the room. So he got to have the fun and the money. And this girl got to make some money just for vouching for him. And at the end here, Hunter is writing up his timesheet for the entire trip to Duke. And he is saying they spent $44,000 within a week in Las Vegas. Not taking into account inflation and candy bar was a nickel back then or some shit. These guys are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it amounted in the hottest New York Times seller. So you got your money back there, Mr. Duke. So Hunter is drawing some more cultural points. He's saying he's low-key mad about how all the uppers are going out of style at this point. Because that's what he likes. I was talking about the freaking opium and all that is really big right now. These downers are taking over the streets. Hunter is an upper guy. He likes whatever that feeling it is that starts to set on you after a week of having to be on those medications. It starts to fuck with your head, man. I would warn anybody that came to me for advice about taking that type of med medication. And Hunter, Hunter saw this being very involved in the drug scene as he was. The country's altogether moving to something different. And yeah, maybe it is opium and Instagram. Well, it used to be drop in, tune out. You would fucking drop a tab and then tune out to all the bullshit. Now it's <laughs> now it's oxy up and insta scroll. It's definitely not a writer mentality. And so Hunter's um, fail proof for getting back for this hotel room was just saying we never had the do not disturb sign on. So, hey, anybody could have been in here. It's like somebody broke into our room. It wasn't me. Wasn't me. Playing Shaggy. Wasn't me. In the courtroom should be enough of a legal defense. Wasn't me. Chapter 12b. Return to the circus circus looking for the ape to hell with the American dream. 
do one more chapter here because we're getting towards the end of the show. And this last, the last fucking two chapters were, it was like super gonzo. He's talking about buying a monkey. And you can see even the director of the movie at the end was like, dude, what are you saying? This isn't part of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. This is Hunter S. Thompson tries to buy a monkey. This is a totally different book. So I'm cramming these last chapters together. Last one also being called Farewell to Vegas, God's Mercy on You Swine. Douglas makes it to the airport, and he is not in a good place. <laughs> He's dealing with all of the drugs, all of that shit being processed out of his system. He is saddled up at a hotel bar, sturdy, having some more of his big ideas going. Journalism is a backdoor into life. Writing can be about anything. Most people just decide to write about what will make them money. How true is that? That is the state of journalism summed up in that quote, basically. You could write about anything to make you money. That's what journalism is. It's just that there's only so many writers and only so many writers willing to write the article. Is the new emoji racist? And put their name under that retarded article. Retarticle. <laughs> and so Hunter saw the rise of this bullshit editorial journalism and was like, this is a backdoor. This is a fucking secret if you learn how to write but use it as a power, not as a curse. Don't use it to fucking kneecap society and write about how we all hate each other and how we need to elect officials that nobody knows about. Write real journalism. Go on the fear and loathing Nixon trail. Look for the truth. And where else to realize you hate fake news than the airport? He was talking about how in this airport, he's watching all the Vietnam coverage. You hear about how mainstream media does not exist anymore yeah are you gonna let me explain they claim to get the biggest shows like the rachel maddow's claim to get three million nightly viewers this takes into account this statistic the three million takes into account all of the tvs in restaurants airports gyms mechanic shops everywhere that are predetermined set on news channels and cannot be changed Nobody is watching this bullshit. There was fake news back then. There were much less people that were woke to it. Hunter was. There's really no excuse to be watching that garbage nowadays, though. Hunter described this as people destroying the American dream with corruption. And his final view on the conference that he went to write about was... This was just a way for thousands of fat-ass cops to lay around Vegas for a few days and expense it all on taxpayers well this is the annual police education convention you know taxpayers have to foot that it was fat people ordering room service and fucking making jokes about how weed makes you come your pants why should you get paid to do that i'm slaving my 20s away to do that to be paid <laughs> make jokes about coming and fucking do drugs <laughs> So big final points here. The only thing that they got right in the 70s was to stop calling it the war on drugs and to call it the drug culture. You cannot control human action. You can only influence it with propaganda. That's what should be taught in school, not the American dream, the human value, that human action can be controlled with propaganda. You should know that is a facet of life before you're taught American dream. You can see how disorganized and out of order our SIM chips were loaded as consumeristic Americans. 
talking like a real fear and loathing reading hippie at the end of the book here. Obviously, Hunter was under close watch on this plane ride because he's like shaking out of control under detox. But he pulls the last grapefruit out of his bag. And all that vitamin C does calm his shakes for a little bit. And where is Hunter taking this plane now? He is stopping in Denver. Like I said, the book ends with him just driving back to L.A. But in reality, he flies up to Denver. (laughs) And he's going, you know, Denver has some of the best Doberman Pinscher breeders in the country. So maybe I'll go there and try to get one of those. Because, you know, that whole fucking live monkey trade didn't go so well for him at the end. So I guess he's coming to get a purebred Doberman in Denver. And from Dr. Gonzo, Hunter has a Doctor of Divinity card, which is apparently like a minister doctor card. (laughs) So he could get drugs anywhere in the world, basically. And he goes up to some uh, little store at the airport and he gets Amel's and cracks it and snorts it right in front of the cashier. It's definitely not how you're supposed to take an amyl, and that's what he did in public. He likes to take it a step further, and he ends the book saying, this amyl has me feeling just as reanimated as Horatio Alger, feeling just sick enough to be totally confident. That is the end of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Thank you very much, Hunter S. Thompson, for your amazing life that could not ever be repeated, even if somebody tried. You are truly a legend and an American hero that deserves some more attention. And thank you very much for a very fun read for the month of November. So maybe in this book you guys were looking for a message of what is the fucking American dream. Some 23-year-old kid with a microphone can't tell you that. (laughs) The president can't tell you that. Maybe it's a lie. It's for you to figure out. But we're all going to get there in the end together here on Nick's Nonfiction. <laughs> so maybe that was just a drug trip story that I wasted all your time with. But we definitely had a fun ride. Keep on keeping on over at Harry Shit Shadow Band over there. It's a total heartbreak. We're being suppressed. You're not going to be able to see my like my stories are not going to show up on your timeline. My The pictures might not even show up. You have to type out Harry entirely before I'll even show up. So disappointing there i'm still getting all the laughs out so keep on following there keep on sharing with friends keep on subscribing with the youtube page i really appreciate you guys out there set that subscription up it don't cost you nothing and i'm not making anything off of it it just makes it easier every month when it pops up i don't have to remind you to check out the video and this will take us to a very noble december next month's book what will we be reading Plato's Republic. <laughs> you all go, what the hell? Back in time. This is not an American classic. This is not a literature classic. This is a human classic. These motherfuckers are thousands of years old. And they have been unlocking the secrets to life and society. This book in specific, Plato's Republic, covers justice. And you're talking with a guy who has a bachelor's of criminal justice. So this is going to be a high IQ, a big brain. This is going to be our most meta discussion. I am taking the chains off. I usually try to constrain my ideas to be related to the topic for the day. Plato, Socrates, Homer, all of his little butt buddies are talking grand concepts. Philosopher Kings, the allegory of the cave. 
This is grand design shit. Timeless human tales. We learned that quote today. It's cycles that repeat themselves. We are going to learn down some of those repeating scripts of this simulation through Plato's Republic next month. So thank you guys. Thank you, Hunter S. Thompson. This was an overdue read for myself, and I'm very excited that I got to spread that story with you guys as well. So keep getting involved. Keep supporting emails at nmunas at udell.edu, and I will see you all for a very fun wrap-up of our first season of Nick's Nonfiction. Love you guys. See you then. Peace.